What is the power of a motivating purpose in one's life? And what happens when our chosen purpose seems to run out, or when its fulfillment feels empty, less thrilling than anticipated? How do we recalibrate? How can any one of us at any stage in our lives discover a sense of renewal that propels us forward in harmony with an evolving world and universe. In this conversation, Aviv Shahar explores the many levels and expressions of human purpose with Holly Woods, author, consultant, transformation leader, and founder of the Emergence Institute. Holly works directly with people from all paths and levels of accomplishment to discover and re-enliven their purpose and passion. Listen now to How Purpose Evolves. Throughout history, the great questions have been asked and great research has been undertaken, always expanding the territory of the known by shining a light into the unknown. Where is that cutting edge today? And can a community of people from all over the world, each carrying their own unique journey of discovery, come together to inquire at the edge of purposeful evolution through conversation? At Portals of Perception, we think it is possible, and we hope that you will choose to be a part of this exploration. The Portals Inquiry is about the future and where and how it appears. Central to this inquiry is the study of how we humans develop, how we bring to life the sense of purpose and meaning, and how these evolve along the journey of living. Today we are in conversation with Holly Woods. Holly is the founder of Emergence Institute. She is the author of Golden Thread, where to find purpose in the stages of your life. As a coach and consultant, Holly is a catalyst for what wants to come alive in people. Holly, welcome. Thank you, Aviv. I'm delighted to be here. Let me begin first by asking you, what are you working on at this time in these times of tremendous change? What are you working on? At the moment? You know, it's an interesting question. I wish I could be, I wish I had, you know, a name of something. What I'm finding at this time is there's so much coming through me newly. I thought I knew exactly where I was going this year. And it turns out that there are a number of threads that are emerging and I haven't really chosen which to spend my energy on yet. I have another book that's that's coming through me. And I do believe I want to write that this year. I have a, a new group program I'll be launching sometime this spring. I've started talking to trees. <laughs> I'm finding myself more immersed in nature than ever. Trees are trees and animals are reaching out to me and wanting to have conversations, I'm told. So we, you know, at least it's a form of a record, you know, in case we lose so there, I'm having, a, there's a lot that's happening for me in addition to, you know, I do a lot of coaching and consulting still and enjoy that and still do it. That's, you know, the focus of most of my work right now. 
Well, so to put it a bit in context, how would you summarize the high-level story that brought you to the work you're leading today? As you know a little bit about life, it was a lifelong journey, really, to arrive here. I believe that my soul brought me to this lifetime in order to resolve the shadow, the challenges, the trauma, the karma of many lifetimes, and integrate those elements of my being that were not fully expressed so that I could be more useful in helping others uncover their purpose, live truly according to their soul. You know, the crux of my lifetime is is really overcoming trauma and shadow and then gaining the tools that I could use in my own life and for others. And so that's, that's kind of a high-level picture of it. I've spent a lifetime becoming myself so that I can help others become themselves. It's really that simple. <laughs> and inside it, the focus of your PhD work was on what? Well, human and organizational development. And, you know, so I've done many, many things, you know, some traditional academic and a, and a lot of learning different modalities and psychotherapeutic methods. And then a lot of healing methods, trauma recovery, et cetera, and a lot of purpose discovery work that is, you know, not traditional. So I've, I've really spent 40 years becoming a a catalyst for myself and others to help us become the next version of ourself that wants to be expressed. Well, so a few uh, days ago, I wrote to you and two other portals friends. I wrote an email that was a little bit out of character for me. And I said, the first couple of weeks of 2023 brought a strange and fantastical sense. I only partly understand what this means. A big part of the experience involves needing to rediscover what is birthing on the inside. Yeah. And I added that the other part of this is that the older self will experience moments of stress and disorientation as it or he registers a new conscious entity that begins to arise within and re-architect the whole of the inner configuration. And then I added that philosophically and practically, if we are, each one of us, an inseparable part of the whole, and in fact connected and integrated in the whole, and if the whole is radically shape-shifting and evolving, then we too, by definition, radically shape-shifting and evolving unless we are already inert components of the elemental infrastructure locked in function that is no longer part of the emergent evolutionary edge. You, like within minutes, you replied, well, we are becoming that... <laughs> You're right. We are becoming that which the field intends for us to be, to serve humanity and the greater cosmic impulse. So can you speak to that awareness of becoming that which the fields? What does that mean for you and how do you experience that? Well, as you so eloquently just stated, 
we are intrinsically linked, you know, <laughs> you in the field. I'm just a a speck in the field. And, you know, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? As I was listening to you, it's like, well, you know, does humanities, are the, is the work that we're doing as individuals to evolve and to become more potent in our evolved expression, you know, were we the catalyst for the field changing so rapidly? Or is the field and its essence, I've never said that, didn't know field had an essence, but evidently it does, and its nature affecting us. And, and obviously it's both. I believe that as we immerse ourselves more and more in the field and the awareness of what is in existence, you know, universe, cosmos, whatever you want to call it, that we experience ourselves newly because it is the most undiluted, pure form of energy. And so I'm going to become more potentized and amplified the more connected I am in the field. So the more I am open and less constricted and not living in the rigid containers of my cultural contexts and social expectations, I'm more available to be that which the field intends for me to be. You know, my, one of the ways I see it is that the field hosts spirit. You know, spirit is everything, everywhere, all the time, living in us, through us, around us, among us. And our soul is the individuated expression of spirit. And so as I'm called forth to be that which I'm meant to be because of my soul's deep desire to be expressed, then I live more fully into what is available to me in the spirit realm, you know, in the field. Did that make sense? <laughs> well, it does. Uh, the first thing you are describing that the art of living is the art of becoming available to all that is seeking to use you as its potentiating agency. And it also includes the idea that as we each evolve and discover ourselves anew, then it is also the case that whatever it is that we are tethered to, connected to, get to through our own emergence and discovery, experience itself anew. So therefore, emergence is never solo phenomenon, but rather a symphonic coherence that, that occurs in that something is allowed in a local sense or in the largest cosmic sense to harmonize into a larger possibility. And so, as you said, the, the self, the idea of a self, the concept of a self in that is inseparable from whatever larger, whether you call it a field or whether you call it the cosmos, you're part, for, part of because they co-arise, co-evolve all at the same time. And it's the belief that has haunted us is that we are individuals making our way through effort, you know, work and effort. And that sort of linear cause and effect mechanistic version of life that which separates us from the whole limits our ability to work with and on 
both, you know, with and on behalf of and in receipt of the energy that's available to us. So it's the, you know, and also critical is the internal alignment with self. You know, it's not, it's a both and. It's we are a part of the whole and we must also be aware of and conscious of and aligned with true self in order to live in our internal coherence to have an external coherence that then resonates and magnifies in the field. So I, you know, very strongly believe that, you know, it's our soul that's wanting to express and create that alignment. And then living in that purposeful trajectory, we are then able to cohere in a radiant way with the field. Yeah. Not to get too technical, I do use the words in my map of meaning and in my journey, the word soul and spirit are used in slightly different context to the way you frame them up. Still, I have no problem skating with your definitions. I will, just for the sake of interest, frame the following, that I would describe two, nat- two souls. There is the first soul nature, the first self-soul, which is the planetary spirit-like mediating loom of intelligence that orchestrates the human experience here on and through this planetary theater, which allows us to function as a human. So there are other living beings, other creatures that will not have a human soul. They will have a different operating system that enables them to do what they need to do and navigate the theater that they operate in. And then there is the second nature soul, the second self soul, which is more to do with the ensoulment journey, which is, I believe, what you are describing as the impulse that is catalyzing your desire in each one of us to draw closer to indeed our spiritual nature. And in a minute, I'll, <laughs> I'll define two different spirit definitions. And that second soul nature, call it the higher soul, call it the evolving soul, call it the ensoulment project of living, is the developmental project that we are engaged in. So I actually see these to be two different definitions, and in some other framings, we may actually give them different names rather than call both of them souls. It seems to me that the way you were using the word soul is inclusive of ears and the various gradients in in between well not really actually you know i i just said a few minutes ago i the cosmos had an essence like i've never said that i didn't know and i think that's what you're describing as that first soul i've actually never thought until now about you know the cosmos the field having an essence or a soul essence used interchangeably let me just make it (laughs) i didn't know we were going to skate there but that's fine (laughs) get even more The essence of the cosmos or the universe is more what I will describe as the spirit. The soul is a planetary entity, the spirit is a universal entity. So we are a unique planetary universal life. That's the unique thing about being a human. And the soul actually enables and mediates the universal consciousness, which is the spark we call the spirit, to come inside mm-hmm. and be expressed and also gain the additional know-how that it comes to gather in this life. 
And then there are other, we can use different names in different times to describe them, but other spirit natures that aggregate through the journey. So that's a different usage of the word spirit from the general idea that spirit is everywhere. I have no problem with playing with these two terms. It's just that the way I offer their spirit as a universal consciousness, soul as a planetary mediating consciousness is quite specific in the architecture. But I said, I didn't plan to get technical. It's just that what you said catalyzed that. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, it's fascinating I, that I have a very, you know, a different experience and impression of it. So, you know, we can certainly save that for another conversation. Very, very fascinating. <laughs> Indeed. But what's important is the, where the definitions and the architecture becomes a second principle rather than a first principle is, is when we sense into the what is beyond words, beyond definitions, and is that, that emergent property. And in what you said and in your work is this sense that the coming into contact with one's own purpose and why you are here at this time actually has an important interrelationship with what's emerging cosmically. That the two are not unrelated events, but actually are highly related events. Why you are, each one of us are here at this time, what you are coming for, and how that can be expressed in your, what you describe as your soul journey to become your authentic self. Yes, I fully concur with that. I believe that we, my own awareness is that we have one purpose and many expressions in a lifetime. And, you know, my book was the, the intent of the book really was to help people become aware of how purpose shows up at different points in time in your life based in, you know, age and stage. And that, especially now with the evolutionary forces that are occurring cosmically, that we are being called into another expression that has much more relevance to this time and space, or non-time, non-space, but that we can and should assume that there is a role for us in the next phase of humanity on planet Earth and or, you know, whatever we become as non-humans, if we become that, and that our, you know, it is really up to us individually and collectively to dig deep inside and listen to what that next expression would be so that not only we can become the most fulfilled, potentiated, amplified, and joyful humans while we're still in this form, but also to contribute to whatever the next phase is, whether it's a re-emergence of humans on the planet and we're going to somehow figure all this out or, you know, whatever our next transitory state will be, there is a reason that we are feeling the impulse to become the next version of us. We are being called into that. And part of your impulse has been to help people access that impulse in and through their own journey. And in a minute, we want to focus specifically 
on three groups or three avatars that you work with. Before we get there, what would you say in terms just as a first sensing into this space, what are you discovering about helping people find their propelling power and purpose? You know, it's been a fascinating ride for me. I've been doing this work for decades in one form or another. And when I started doing this work and I talked about purpose, people are like, what are you talking about, Holly? <laughs> like, you know, no sense of what I was attempting to communicate and or what I was attempting to pull out of people. And so I had to use a lot of other words. And that's fine. <laughs> you speak to where people are. And what's happened, you know, in the last several years is that as the pandemic happened and we got to do a lot of self-reflection, deep inquiry because of the circumstances and the isolation and being confronted with so much um, collective trauma and grief that many of us dug really deep inside and said, who am I and why am I here? And so we evolved as humans in that period of time. And now more than ever, there are many more humans on the planet who are really truly ready to uncover, you know, to answer that question, who am I and why am I here and what am I doing? Principally because we now have more people now have access to their internal world, what we might call metacognition, but their internal sensing, you know, thoughts, feelings, et cetera. And then they also have access to others. And so a greater level of empathy has emerged and a greater level of discrimination, discernment about who I am versus, you know, who I thought I was and who they wanted me to be. And so more and more people are now ready to do this work to uncover what I believe happens is our soul brings us back to do the work and become ourselves. And that's really the primary task of being human is to uncover what's truly in us and what wants to be birthed. And so, you know, for me, it's been a joyful experience, not that the pandemic was joyful, but as people woke up and became aware of, of these possibilities that more and more people are now ready to do that. And, and even more so, you know, people have moved further along their own life trajectory and done a lot of personal spiritual development work and so we're now have greater access to what really wants to emerge from them and so i'm finding my work more fulfilling and more joyful and i'm delighted to be able to serve at this time to help people really uncover and contribute you know be of use in the world and so you're also describing there i believe inside it a narrative where perhaps for a couple, three, four decades, a lot has been going on, but has perhaps in many places been more in a chrysalis form. It's been contained, but that the beginning of this decade and through the pandemic and what's evolving since, the, the quickening or the birthing or the, the butterfly, or the, at least the potential of a butterfly coming out of its cocoon, all of those different narrative forms, they describe something that's occurring. And I imagine that there are two prime natures in that many more people are seeking to get in touch with, as you're saying, what is indeed inside to uncover the, the true or 
deeper or higher potential. Nature one and nature two, that a lot of this work involves dialogic, coaching, therapy, one-on-one, communal. It's, so the, the two arenas are being potentized, the individuation, the individual space, and the way to bring that inquiry into various um, collective spaces. And you happen to find yourself right there in the frontier of this um, trend, is this evolution, actually working with people to help them find how to decode what it is that they are experiencing. Yeah, I'm pretty blessed. (laughs) And it's been a long journey. You know, as you can imagine, I too have been doing my work and evolving to become the most potent form of me to be available right now. You know, it just so happens that so much of my own life has evolved, you know, right aligned with where the planetary impulse and the collective field has been. And, and you know, just in right timing, I've shown up having done so much of my work and, you know, now ready to be just completely in service. I feel like this Bodhisattva evolved just perfectly with the need for us to become ourselves more than ever. Just briefly, I had a oddly, I had an awakening last January that was the most powerful experience I've ever had, you know, brought me to my knees. And, and since then, a lot has been emerging from me in terms of new methodologies and new awareness and understanding and ways of working with people. So this is me in alignment with the cosmos, the field. I feel like I couldn't have done this. I'm just a portal and a a vessel for spirit, my spirit and soul. And and so just ready at the right time because of, you know, the connection that we experience. So we do actually want to explore a little bit about the, also some of the methodology and the way of the work before we get there. I'd like us to focus on the three avatars or three archetypes that you describe that you focus on in your work. Uh, you call them the corporate refugees is the first group. The second are the next gen leaders and the third, the veteran change makers. So I'd like us to actually go one by one, one at a time and decipher some of the main development opportunities and how you are observing and experiencing each of uh, these groups. And and I'm called to begin with the corporate refugees. Who are they? What are they seeking? And what are their opportunities? And thank you for the opportunity, Aviv. And just to note that these are my internal you know, monikers for these groups, not intending to be disrespectful in any way. But they're, you know, descriptors that I've given people who show up. And just over the years, there are particular kinds of people that have shown up in in my world and wanted to be supported in their evolutionary trajectory. So corporate refugees are typically very successful, having been very successful executives, founders, innovators who've either launched their own company and had great success, or they've been executives in a corporate environment. 
they, you know, they've been there, done that, made the money, had the financial stability, you know, checked all the boxes that we're told to check, you know, so much the time in our Western world. And then at some point, like, okay, but that didn't do it. I don't, there's no meaning in that. And I'm unfulfilled and I don't need to do that anymore. And I want something else. And so they show up with this vast array of skills and talents and capacity. I mean, it's amazing how much capacity these folks have. And I, you know, equally split usually between men and women, probably 60% men, I would say. And they are ready to then make a difference for themselves and their family and also in the world. Sometimes they show up with that, oh my God, you know, that dream I had when I was 30 and I just, I never did it because I was focused on making money for my family and la 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 and climbing the corporate ladder and or scaling their business. And they get to go dust off a dream often that was something, some implicit knowing that there was something that they were meant to do, but it took the back shelf because it wasn't they couldn't figure out how to make that work and also accomplish the other objectives they had. What's available to them, I mean, generally, I mean, and so, so sometimes it's that and sometimes it's something brand new, but it's usually something that's been deeply hidden in them for quite a while and they're ready to shine, you know, let it shine, let it come out and surface and breathe fresh air on it. Most of these people are pretty confident, capable, successful, you know, have done a lot of remarkable things in the world. And yet when it comes to the thing that's most important to them, you know, that will create the most meaning. There's the same kind of resistance that there is for any of us because it's more important to you know self and soul and so we do the same kinds of work it's fascinating i mean it's it's beautiful and and they learn a level of vulnerability and awareness that they you know formerly didn't have any reason to have and open up in many ways that you know nothing else would have brought them here so so this is a very interesting group for me obviously because in some ways, you could say that many of the executives that I've worked with over the last uh, two decades, they're often corporate refugees still inside the corporate environment. So they bring somebody like me to create for themselves a refuge inside the corporate environment with their teams, with their organizations. The, the important and curious nuance in what you are describing about the sense of fulfillment because you're beginning to hint there to the evolving, changing nature of the journey through the stages of life. Because when you say they, are, they don't feel fulfilled, where well, they probably felt fulfilled a little earlier in some capacity, in some way with what they were doing, and now they are reaching a point where what felt fulfilling five years ago, 10 years ago, is no longer fulfilling and they're awakened for that something else that you then help them unearth or, or discover and journey yeah, towards important. realization. Very important point. And the fulfillment that comes earlier in life when is, you know, in earlier stages of a human development, 
is more concrete. You know, it's more real world, material world items. And then we move into more intellectual, social expectations. And then at some point, as we're developing as humans, we gain capacity to see beyond those things. And it becomes more about the internal fulfillment. So earlier fulfillment is usually related to an they're externally oriented. You know, their family, culture, community, corporate, peer group expectations about what success looks like. And generally we think of being fulfilled when I've achieved those expectations. And so it is a very different kind of fulfillment. And when we wake up to what's inside of us, our internal milieu, we like, oh, there's like, I'm missing all of that. I'm, I may be, you know, happy sometimes, but I don't have a joy. I don't have a, you know, the life force is missing from me. And they wake up to really having a deep desire and longing for that and I can speak more about what the longing actually is, but it's really a you know, it's a later stage of development. What would you describe as some of the salient uh, shadow illumination patterns with this first group, the corporate refugees? You know, I what's fascinating is I don't actually see a lot of distinction of the types of individual shadow among the groups of people I work with. I mean, okay. for me, you know, I call it shadow is just that which we can't see about ourselves. And it's related to a repression of true self, usually in childhood, often sometimes adolescence and early adulthood. And we create these coping mechanisms or strategies or parts that become the protectors of the self that will survive and thrive in our current environment. And the shadow is the part of us that's repressed and fractured from ourselves that most of us can't see, except shows up in behaviors that we know get us in trouble, but we don't know what to do about them. And so we further repress them. <laughs> you know, That's my bad habit. That's the thing I really resent about myself. I'm critical of it. And so, Generally, I would maybe the corporate refugees are often attempting, you know, they've stayed in long enough and accomplished things. And generally, shadow shows up as, you know, some lack of acceptance and allowance and nurturing of true self in childhood. And this is true for most of us, but maybe even more pronounced in this group. And so there was a proving energy that you know, got them in, made sure they succeeded, made sure they did all of what was expected and stated. And even after it didn't feel good anymore, because this is what I'm supposed to do. And so there's a conformity to expectations, family, society that exists in this group that's a little more pronounced than some of the others. Okay, so let's bring online the next gen leaders. <laughs> Who are they? Describe the next-gen leaders. And what is the nature of creativity and brilliance and struggle and opportunities you are discovering with them? You know, and I, I know you also work with some, with and explore this phenomenon of what we're calling next-gen leaders. So you can, I, I want you to contribute here as well. 
I don't know, about a decade ago, youngish people started showing up in my world and much earlier than I had experienced before, you know, early 20s to early 30s generally. And they were much more aware and awake and had done more personal development and or spiritual development work, usually both, and had a were conscious of their environments, the context in which they live, the world crises, had a greater empathy, and wanted to do something about it, you know. So at the time, these were Gen Xers, and then they've become, you know, as time's gone on, they've become millennials, and now they're Gen Y and Zers. As I've been doing the work, the next gen leaders have gone along with the cohorts of the demographic cohorts. But the patterns haven't shifted. And what I see in these people is that they did, you know, either they were raised in families that were doing personal development or spiritual development work. They had access to resources. They lived in communities that appreciated nature and caring for people and social justice and all the things. And and so they were raised in a context that allowed them to develop earlier in life than, you know, maybe our generation and or maybe the these corporate refugees who maybe didn't have that same experience. So less traditional cultures was a part of the, you know, of their baseline experience. And therefore they developed an awareness of their internal experience earlier. And so they show up and like, I got my whole life ahead of me and I want to make a difference. And often they though have had, you know, three to 10 years of experience doing something meaningful, making money, you know, in the world, the grind, the thing, you know, what we, what we learned to do after college or before college, whatever. And they're like, nope, that's not for me. I am definitely not going that route and I'm going to do something different. So they show up very determined and willing to think so far out of the box that they are typically much more innovative. They're much more capable of, stepping into roles that are outside of normative expectations and creating innovations and businesses and careers that are, you know, not traditional. So they, you know, they're creating stuff that doesn't exist. And some of the same, you know, it's, it's like all of the people I work with deeply desire to have more fulfillment and meaning. And then there's a gradation of how much impact in the world I want to have. And so the next gen leaders are generally, I got to have more impact. I got to turn this around. I want to make a difference. The corporate refugees, I'd say, want to have impact, but for them, it's, it is as much about internal fulfillment and having an impact in my immediate environment, family, kids, community, you know, uh, networks, and for the next gen leaders is generally like, nope, I'm going to go out there and change the world and I'm going to, you know, make up stuff to do so. <laughs> well, so two observations in my experience with next gen leaders is first, they show up with different inclinations. So some indeed go into the startup world. They, they begin, they start new businesses. Some are propelled into activism. Some are propelled into other 
causes and and find a way to do so through variety of not-for-profit uh, endeavors. And then you have those that are very much um, compelled in the interior personal or the interior communal space. So you, you've got those different spaces. And so that would be the third feature that I will reflect on. The second is that because they've not had yet the full life to pull it all together, often there is an uneven readiness. So there, there is an excelling in one space or one capacity or one inclination. And there is a degree of impatience and refusing to understand why is it that not more and not faster is being realized in that one arena that is being pioneered. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's the more, not a reflection of a stage of development, but is more a chronological life stage comment. And uh, it's not that there aren't people that were very, are very successful in their 20s and build large and profitable businesses and people that are able to, uh, say, in their mid-30s or early 40s, I'm done with the money issue. It's, it's addressed. I've, I've answered the material question. Let's discover what I want to do next. All of those are there, but I find often that there is a sense of uneven readiness. And I imagine that in the journey support that you offer, that must be a, a feature at times. It is. And I, as you know, I do everything from purpose discovery and alignment and shadow work to helping build the thing. I've got a long entrepreneurial background myself in product development so and career changes. So that is also an aspect of the work. And so, you know, I work with people where they are and... There's a fair amount of shadow in this group, as you describe. There's such a impulse to move forward and do things and make stuff and often break things that there's a, we spoke about this before, there's a, there's a little bit of righteousness that happens in, you know, I'm young, I have the energy, I have, I know what needs to happen and I'm going to make it happen and I don't need your help. <laughs> and so and that's not true for all of them, but some of them, like there isn't a recognition that there were potentially some steps missed in their developmental journey that would give them more capacity to take on and fulfill the charter they've set out for themselves. And so some of my work literally is helping fill in those developmental capacities. Well, just on this one, can you instantiate it, give an example? So, so how, well, two, two questions. How do you map righteousness inside this? <laughs> what is this pattern revealing and, and what are some ways you'll work with that? Just because it came up in the conversation. So, okay. Yeah. So as we discussed before, and I see this sort of writ large globally among humanity is that when you reach a particular stage, there is a level of awareness of what's going on inside of me that you recognize not everybody has access to and I'm beginning to understand myself and who I am and what's important to me. And, Oh, and I can see what's in you. 
and I can notice that we are distinct and I can notice that there are things that I'm meant to do and there are probably things that you're meant to do. And then as you evolve a little bit past that stage, there is a greater awareness about systems. You begin to see with each level of metacognition and aware, increased awareness, you begin to see the bigger picture and you start to see the systems. And that level of perspective taking is actually still pretty extraordinary among humans. And so many of these next-gen leaders have made it to these later stages of awareness of perspective taking capacity and realizing I'm unusual, I'm distinct, I'm rare. And wow, I got a lot of skills and I can see a lot of things and I'm gonna go build stuff. And so there is um, the righteousness that happens is that sort of special feeling. I must be special to have all of these gifts of seeing things. And I don't necessarily see a lot of other people having those same capacities. And therefore, I'm just going to go do what I want to do because I can. And, you know, those are beautiful young instincts. And I, gosh, we need more of those on the planet. And I think it would be so wise for those young impulsive instincts to partner with, you know, more veteran, wiser, more life experienced practitioners, you know, of life, of work, and, you know, work together. And the, the righteousness really is about just the record, you know, the internal recognition of how rare it is to reach that level of development and so, capacity. So implicit in this unique observation is the, the insight that as we evolve to new levels of awareness, new levels in terms of our consciousness and our capacity, there are new kinds of traps or shadow elements that would appear actually in those as part of ascending to greater level of awareness that were not activated before you found yourself in those spaces. That, that's an important developmental awareness. The, the more you develop, the more you're about to discover and unearth areas that you need to attend to that you never needed to attend to before. Yes, completely. And, you know, I think the old belief that if I had just reached enlightenment, everything was going to be great. I don't know about you, but I have not experienced that at all. <laughs> it's just, you know, it remains, I just remain humble <laughs> at how much there is always to become aware of and to illuminate and to acknowledge and to integrate and resolve. This is at each stage of, you know, development is to each stage of evolution. And I also want to just acknowledge that, you know, many of these types of young leaders are truly doing remarkable things on the planet. And I in no didn't intend to denigrate that particular, you know, type of person. And there often is shadow because they ascended so fast up the ramp towards self-awareness that there are often many very deep shadows that haven't been resolved from earlier in life. And so there's also a lot of shadow work that needs to be done in order. And so the righteousness really is a reflection of some missing pieces earlier. 
And if those right. had been fulfilled, it wouldn't show up in that same way. Right. And how do you, inside that experience and observation, escape in yourself the position of, oh, I am the elder experience that can see all these things, and a bit of that unrealized, unfulfilled energy that essentially yearns for a fuller cross-generational engagement and participation. That's partly what I'm hearing because, I mean, somebody could listen to this conversation and say, well, Holly, even inside what you said, there is a hint of righteousness of a different kind. And so it's like when you said a minute ago about um, (laughs) what was your experience about enlightenment, what was going on inside me, I said, hmm, I don't think I want now in this conversation to take to pieces the Eastern framework of enlightenment as a destination. And just as the thought surfaced, I said, well, Aviv, this is your tinge of righteousness about that Eastern bias that I've always felt was limiting, where the the entire story was about arriving to some station rather than realizing that we were now living into an epochal shift, the nature of which was an evolving story where we are forever pushing the void, pushing the frontier. And so therefore realization, enlightenment, all these ideas that were initially described in some of the axial religions in a time when the world was not yet soaring to the kind of fuller engagement with life in the universe. And the best case scenario that was available then was arrive to a station that will um, exonerate you from the suffering of life. And that was called realization and other names in various Eastern practices where what I'm proposing, the developmental inclination that we are now exploring in this conversation is much more about an on-the-move, in-progress realization, enlightenment, and actually the trueness of the the true air realization and enlightenment and, and those other words. They are more about what am I discovering today about how foolish I was yesterday or the week before and my capacity to expand my space and integrate what I couldn't integrate yesterday, that is where the evidence of it is perhaps, at least for me, more apparent. Rather than needing to claim a certain station that I've arrived to. I'm totally with you. And my life has, you know, been boots on the ground. I'm trying to survive (laughs) processing the trauma, you know, doing the best work I can do never had any aspiration for enlightenment, you know, until much later, and not that it was ever an aspiration, but, oh, there is something about waking up that definitely would be useful on this journey as a human. And I just, I wanted to, something occurred to me as you were talking is there's some way that it's actually easier for me to work with corporate refugees than these next-gen leaders because they didn't skip as much. Like, you know, they weren't in a hurry. They didn't, they weren't on this trajectory upward they generally just were like living good lives doing the work becoming you know solid humans raising families working hard and sure there's stuff from childhood that shows up as shadow that has to be resolved that needs to be resolved but it's very different and 
sometimes these folks will actually go further in their innovation and execution because they know what it takes to actually execute things. And there's not as much assumptive, it's not an assumptive orientation about how I'm going to be in the world. The next gen leaders generally came from environments, families, communities that were more oriented toward spiritual development, enlightenment, and skipped a lot. And so they may have an aspiration, inspiration and aspiration, but not so grounded. And so it's a lot to ground all that energy. Well, we still want to capture here and codify that, that surface, which is important because you and I, we've also dialogued in the context of the three journeys. And when we mapped the three journeys, we described the two traps that would often show up in the transition from journey one to journey two. And we named them as the identification and the intoxication trap. And what in the context of what you are sharing here becomes evident is that any time we really make a step up in whatever we define as step up, maybe a new capacity that's coming online, a new awareness, a new perspective, a new way of connecting dots that I couldn't connect before. There is, so there are always implicit traps with that. The righteousness would be part of that because I discover, I see something I didn't see before. So now I have the illusion that, first of all, nobody else is seeing it because I never saw it until now. And the fact that I can see it means no one else had realized or discovered that until this point. And secondarily, there is an impatience. And that, that struggle of, okay, so how do I hold it in a stable way? And sometimes that impatience is being externalized as a projection that becomes righteous in nature. And I would often, if I experience this, I will say, well, the impatience of the righteousness that's expressed towards another is in the first place the impatience of the person with themselves, impatience that I, I've just opened a new capacity and I'm somewhat frustrated that I can't hold it yet at a fully stabilized, steady way. I can't be safe in that space and still integrated with the whole of me. And I experience this expanding, contracting syndrome. And inside it, there is an impatience that can become righteous. So just to codify that that would reappear in some shape or form time and again along the journey. Yes, I think that's true. It becomes more salient in this group and at that stage also because they have language to use to describe and slightly weaponize the, you know, the distinction. I don't know, just recently began to think about, you know, weaponizing goodness. When I can show up to do goodness but I turn it into some form of identification, you know, a brand, a, you know, the, the digital world we live in. There, it's a form of weaponization that I hadn't really thought about. And I just think, we, you know, we just need to be curious about it and thoughtful 
about how we use language and our own awareness in attempting to do good in the world, you know? Indeed. So perhaps a good place to transition to the third group, the third um, archetype, the veteran change makers. What are their struggles and strengths? You know, and this particular group, and it's, you know, the before the pandemic, I think on LinkedIn, there were like 3 million coaches. And after the pandemic, there were like 10 million coaches. <laughs> In this same period of time where we did all this introspection and navel-gazing, lots of people became coaches. And so the field of changemakers itself has evolved a lot. Many of the clients that I have worked with over time are people who've been in the field of transformation for a while, and they know that, and they've been doing generally good work, and often they get burned out and or unfulfilled because You know, it, it did have meaning. I was doing what I thought I was meant to do. I felt purposeful and then I didn't. And I, I don't know, should I, you know, go change careers? Should I do something else? And, and so usually these people are in a transition place. They're moving from a stage, one stage to the next and their world has shifted. They've gained perspective. Their capacity has expanded And there is another version of them that wants to be birthed with new expanded work. You know, they have gained enough skills capacity that there's something else that could be expressed through them and they just don't know what it is. Sometimes they have successful businesses, sometimes not. Sometimes they come to me after they've been struggling for a long time. But not always. Sometimes they're in the middle of their business and it's going well and they scaled and like, oh, I have all these things going, but it doesn't mean anything to me anymore. They're kind of a mix of the other two categories. They often have figured out how to be successful in the, in the you know, material world. Well, some of them were the old next generation leaders a few decades ago, yes? Yes, exactly. You know, often 60s, 70s. Yes, exactly. And though what was available to them then, you know, us then was different than what's available now. So let me ask specifically, because you talked about burnout. What do you codify? How do you, what are some of the diagnostic patterns of the reasons for burnout, as you have observed? Because I'm just thinking about it out loud for a minute. There is the case where I was inspired by something that led me into a journey. And in essence, that potential has been used, has been realized. And I have not found a way to update myself. So I'm working out of an old battery, out of an old revelation, out of an old impulse. And I've used that up. That's one yep. burnout. A second completely different burnout that I, I'm observing is the situation where somebody has been propelled into a space because they passionately believe in the cause they were about to serve. And they discovered that alongside the passion, there are capacities and skills and capabilities 
and also self-care and self-maintenance and self-regulation that they haven't been able to fully develop. So that's a different kind of a burnout. So right there, there is a whole discovery to map the different patterns of burnout and they each need a different uh, kind of support and, and help, I imagine. Well, and then there's the, the burnout of someone who's been doing something, you know, in a similar way, consistent way through time, and then the world shifted and it no longer worked. And I don't know how to adapt to the new world and the new challenges and the new context of, you know, the problem I was trying to solve. I mean, there are, you know, probably a, a handful of reasons people reach burnout, including lack of self-care and but generally the people who show up are also shifting to a new level of awareness and perspective taking and can see things they couldn't see i mean i think at least one of the scenarios you described was that i now see things that i didn't see before and what i was doing doesn't work and it was burning me out anyway and unconsciously i went looking for something else and maybe here it is well, that's not so much of a burnout. It's more what perhaps somebody is describing as a burnout, but is more a, the crucible of change, the crucible of hospicing an old version of myself to birth a new version of myself that I may be experiencing as a burnout, but it's actually the birth pains and pangs of a new possibility. Yeah. You know, I often... What happens is people describe themselves as burnout and then they'll turn around and and tell me, oh, and, and I have this new thing I'm inspired by. <laughs> and so if we are, you know, in most change makers, which is just a sort of a term for people who are like in the transformational arena, coaches, consultants, philosophers, authors, you know, there's a lot of people who are really wanting to do, to make a difference in the world and have spent, you know, most of their lifetime doing that. Most of us, unconsciously are always looking for the next thing that inspires us, right? I think you and I are birds of a feather in that way. I'm like, okay, where is the next juice coming from? I'm called to the inspiration well more than most, and that keeps me alive, and it keeps my life force alive and dynamic and growing. And so, you know, bored and burnout are not words I would ever use. And most people in this arena have that tendency, but they're afraid to take the steps to move mm -hmm. out of their existing structures. They're much less likely to make the transition to a new career or a new product or a new something because they didn't necessarily have the same, you know, financial success you know, people in transformational arena don't make as much money as people in corporate generally. That's not always true. But and so there's some lack of of abundant mindset. There's fear of insecurity and stability and a lot of shadow that goes with that that also has to be resolved. So it's a it's a different approach to helping them move forward in into a new way. So they, they may know kind of where they ought to go, but like, oh, I can't do that. That's, you know, that's just far beyond my realm of possibility. What is the place of synchronicity and serendipity in the work you do as you 
help and coach and lead others into their own discovery of what's next for them? Well, so I view synchronicity as a result of being internally aligned and coherent and then coherent with my environment in a way that I can then magnetize, resonate. And so for me to show up and do what I do, I have to be fully aligned and coherent and continually doing the work to stay in that place when I'm with people. And so, and what happens is that because I transmit that, I actually am modeling for them what it's like to be in alignment, coherent, and then resonating. And generally what happens, it wasn't until this past year when I was told to go learn how to create synchronicity that I began to understand this. I used to tell my clients, you know, we're going to do these things and, you know, we're going to discover your purpose and we're going to do shadow work and, and then just poof, magic. it's going to be like magic. It's going to show up. <laughs> and I used to just like, I don't even know how to explain it. I don't know what happens, but it just does. And it's magic and it shows up and, you know, la la la. And now I understand it more fully. So synchronicity is a huge part of my work and I now understand it and it really is alignment 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 which means you know discovery do the shadow work resolve become clear and more free of those limitations and constrictions and then taking small steps into the world inviting in opportunities and boom it shows up it still feels like magic but I now understand fully how to create that that opportunity for my clients. So it is synchronistic. Most, the vast majority of my clients, you know, we get to a place and there's usually a session where something happens and they're like, you know, la, <laughs> it's just all kinds of awarenesses happen and then people and places start showing up. And So let's um, talk a little bit about your book, a golden thread. Let me first ask, what is the central idea of a golden thread and why did you write the book? Well, the central idea is that purpose lives within us. We're born with it. We come in with a purpose and we have amniotic amnesia, forget all the reasons we're here. And then we spend a lifetime attempting to find ourselves again. And that on purpose because we are intending to have the experiences and the opportunities to rediscover ourselves over and over again, both through the experiences that highlight, that illuminate our gifts and talents and passions in the world, but also to provide the opportunities for us to have the challenges that would unearth the shadow, that which lies within us that needs to be resolved. And so the golden thread, as I was working with people over time, I and part of it is based in my own life, my own life experience, I began to notice the patterns that reemerge over and over that we don't, we tend not to pay attention to that are that, you know, the pattern, the thread really is our soul guiding us, nudging us forward to have those experiences. And if we don't pay attention to it, and we ignore it, both, you know, the the gift and the shadow, we're going to have it again. And so the repetitive nature of life attempting to show us who we are is this thread 
running through our lives that demonstrates what lives in us innately. The three hypotheses were that this thread exists, that we don't see it because we're on this developmental trajectory through life, attempting to accomplish tasks for each age of our life, and that purpose is going to look different at each age. So it's going to have a different expression in childhood and adolescence and young adulthood than it does in late adulthood. And then the second is that it hides behind the shadow. We tend not to think of the trauma, the shadow, the pain of our lives as being fortuitous and an opportunity. But in fact, if we pay really close attention to that shadow and how it shows up, it is evidence of who we are and what we need to resolve. So that's what the book is about. And so the, the central aspect of the journey work is rediscovery and resolve of what prevents you from engaging and getting tethered to that purpose presence inside. Yes. And instead we become tethered to, you know, the societal yeah. conformist expectations of of our lives and the tasks of each stage, we can get stuck attempting to live within those constraints. And so our purpose is, our soul generally is helping us move along by creating new opportunities if we choose to use them, recognize and use them. What is purpose stress and or purpose anxiety that you write about? Well, it's concept, and you know, and, and I think it exists broadly now because we have evolved, and more and more people are living in this place where they have an awareness that, you know, I am unique. I have a unique self, and there's something that lives in me that I want to express, but I don't know what it is, and I can't find it, and I can't figure out how to do it. Creates a fair amount of anxiety for most people. I I saw that pretty rampantly latter part of the pandemic, it was like a purpose frenzy. <laughs> there were lots of people wanting to find purpose. And then at some point, the anxiety frenzy died as people's like, well, you know, I'm on purpose. I'm doing my purpose. I'm, I like what I do. That's good enough. And so it almost, I would say there's less anxiety now than there was a couple of years ago because Purpose became, oh, I'm building products that, you know, are sustainable or whatever. And so people started using purpose in a way that wasn't the original meaning of it as a means of calming the anxiety. I, be I believe that's why it happened. You write about the relationship between purpose and shadow. And you say, key to living on purpose is to look squarely in the face of your greatest sorrows and greatest joys. Find the connection between them over time and understand that there are flip sides of the same coin. Joy is the expression of light. Sorrow is the expression of the dark. Neither are right or wrong and both illuminate who you really are. So what would be an example just to get the sense of this either from a specific case in point with a client without going into names or in whatever way you want to instantiate it, bring it to life, that sense that the, the sorrow is or can be guidance 
to your purpose? What would be a, a for instance that you could share? You know, I tend to not want to use my clients' examples. It just, you know, a lot of confidentiality. And I'm certainly a case study for <laughs> Okay. You know, and and even as recently as this year, I you know, like I said, I'm always continuing to do my work. I like, you know, we're just on this path and it kind of never ends. And I have a long history of being in narcissistic relationships. My mother exhibited those tendencies when I was a child. And so that's what I learned was a part of intimate relationship and dozens, literally dozens of narcissists in my life. And this past year I had another opportunity and I'm like, I'm going to get this thing, going to figure out why this is so painful, why I keep calling this in, why is it so painful? And this particular instance, I ended a relationship and deeper grief than I've ever experienced in my life. It was so cathartic and painful <laughs> and like, okay. And so I had developed some new tools for uncovering deep, 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 like, you know, way deep beliefs and sub-beliefs and rooted and, you know, probably past lifetimes. And I finally got to some of the beliefs that were holding me in this pattern of narcissism and codependence. And I uncovered these beliefs and lo and behold, I had this habit, this behavior of not speaking my truth. You know, part of my purpose is to speak powerful truths. So this is where, you know, so my purpose to speak powerful truths, shine love on the shadow, deliberate soul's potential, reunite love and power. So I have this really amazing capacity to speak powerful truths, but on my own behalf, I was showing up in relationship, not speaking my truth until I felt loved and accepted and stable in a relationship. And then my truth would show up. And the person that supposedly loved me couldn't handle who I really was. And so it became this very inflamed, <laughs> conflict-laden, this ain't going to work kind of thing. And, oh, my God, I've been doing this my whole life. And what would it be like for me to, like, right off the bat, like, no, this is who I am. This is what I need. This is what I need. It sounds so stupid, no. right? And so I, like ended i literally this year ended that whole pattern it's a little embarrassing to admit this but like i don't care well you have chosen here a daring move in this conversation instead of talking about a client you've <laughs> you, you've just me yeah that's right instead of talking about a client you're talking about right. client number one which is yourself right and right. we are always now, i've been the case study for all of my work like everything i've ever learned and developed came from me trying to survive this crazy life that I've chose to live and, you know, undo all of the trauma. But the, the gist of those beliefs were I, I didn't have self-love and self-acknowledgement, you know, so the nurturing I didn't get as a child just, you know, amplified over a lifetime and not respecting myself enough to speak the powerful truths on my own behalf. And so this is the thing with purpose is we can go find our purpose, but until we bless ourselves with it and we really live fully in the self-fulfillment of that purpose, we'll never truly potentiate. So the sorrow and the joy here were, you know, me being able to speak on my own behalf in these relationships 
and showing up for myself and with others. It was, you know, it was part of the same pattern. I hope that worked. <laughs> well, let me try and narrate back to you the story the way I have experienced it. You have gone on a profoundly intense, a lifelong journey to discover the power of purpose and how that power can be activated and realized in all the people around you and you have helped people discover that sense of purpose such that they can live a, a fuller, more integrated life to get to a place that you could be allowed to embrace yourself more fully, to offer yourself the self-acknowledgement, the self-love, the self-care, to release what perhaps in the first place catalyzed you on this journey. So you've had to, you've gone on this journey to get to a place to possibly realize what got you on the journey in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, we tend to do for others, you know, what we need for ourselves. And I mean, there are, and I think that was beautifully said. The other piece that I would add is that this wasn't the very first time I'd seen this pattern, but it was, I got to the roots of it, some new methods I've developed. I got to the roots of it in a way that I'd never been able to get to. I'm now get to core beliefs and then all the sub-beliefs that are a part of that system and then extract it and replace it with a new alternate belief system. And it was the first time I'd have been able to like dig it out at the roots, you know, like... A- well, can you say, just a, I know this is a whole other conversation by itself, but can you say a little <laughs> bit more about the methodology part and how do you inquire to discover the hidden beliefs and the, the sub-hidden yeah. beliefs well, and the process of then rescripting and, and recasting these beliefs? Yeah, and working for my, with myself is you know, slightly different than how I work with others. So with clients, I generally do a few exercises to get at you know, their awareness of their beliefs and their belief systems. And it's generally pretty cursory. Most people have a sense of, oh, yeah, these are some things that I believe that are probably in the way of me living fully. And we explore that a bit. And then I do some parts work uh, using internal family systems therapy work and uncover who the parts are that they are contending with in their lives. And then we get at the beliefs of those parts and then after a period of time, I can sense, I intuit, you know, I channel literally, these are the beliefs that are really in your way. And these are the beliefs that we need to like do the deep work on. And so there's mm-hmm. usually one, two, maybe three deep core beliefs that live way subsurface that, you know, almost nobody knows about that drive everything in our lives that once we can get to those you know, we're so liberated. And that was true for me as well. I had started doing this work last year with my clients and I hadn't had a reason to use it on myself. <laughs> I'm like, oh good, a reason I get to do it. So it's, you know, it starts out up here and then we just get deeper and deeper and deeper and boom, they show up in our work together. What was in 
this, for instance, the belief was the belief, um, I cannot uh, be fully loved before complete the sentence. You know, I'd have to go back to my notes to get the specific belief, but it was something about, I can't show up as myself. Hmm. Something like that, which, you know, then led to some other sub-beliefs, which then let me recreate, you know, what was the core belief I was hanging on to still, you know, and then the practice really is to go create some alternate belief systems, alternate beliefs for each of those beliefs, and then to do some visualization. I do a lot of visualization with my clients, you know, creating a different reality that becomes energetically the new version of you. And so when you're done with this process, not only have you liberated the core beliefs, but you've become energetically, dynamically, the new being, the new the alternate reality. Would it be fair and correct to uh, intuit that um, given that you have, in a way, gone full circle and... Uh, sourced the instigating impulse that perhaps sent you on this journey with now being prepared to more fully embrace yourself that the work that you were led into over these many decades into the discovery of purpose that in many ways you're probably now emerging beyond that. I'm guessing I'm intuiting that next phase for you will be the work beyond purpose. I'm wondering what that... what. <laughs> I'm actually in the process of creating a workshop called Beyond Purpose. Okay. And so it is, it's this next, I mean, the, the group program I'm planning to launch sometime this spring is really about creating the alternate versions of us who can conceive of ourselves as unlimited relative to the former versions of us because that's what the world really needs now. You know, we need to de-identify with the former human versions. I don't, it's not like I'm, you know, turning us into cyborgs or something, but de-identify with the constructions of ourselves as these limited humans and attempt to identify with an alternate reality that is that where more is possible than we can truly imagine. And you're suggesting that a fulcrum for that discovery and realization is that you're no longer just merely in the quest of the discovery of self, that there is a context whereby what the world needs of you, what the cosmos needs of you, is part of the dance of discovery. That's what I'm hearing in what you are mapping. Yes, it starts with self, starts with purpose. And it includes all of everything that I've done so far. And it goes this next step of becoming the, the other, the alternate version of me for whom possibilities enhanced, amplified. I mean, I can become what I need to become at, at this time because it's available to me because I'm no longer limited by the former conceptions. So if one way of describing the human journey is doing the work of development. And then if on top of it, another way of describing the human journey is doing the work of purpose, one could imagine that there is beyond that the work of getting tethered to source and getting tethered to your bigger 
universal potential and whatever that means. And from, so the, for me, there are layers and layers upon layers, one of which, by the way, that's important, is that in this greater potential, one of the ways to discover it, become the agnostic of it, and participate in the unlocking of its potential is to attune, very well attuned to where do I sense increasing conductivity? Increasing conductivity and expanding space. Because when I am entering an expanded space, or when I'm able to, with others, catalyze an expanded space and increasing conductivity, I am in some way already sourcing the, that something else that's beyond the local me, beyond the planetary me, and is intuiting and beginning to unlock um, a larger universal potential. I would agree. You're using conductivity in the way I would just say energy, but, you know, I, I love the word conductivity. You know, I do, I help people, teach people to discern what I call key purpose indicators. And, you know, sort of the energy is certainly one of them and, you know, really paying attention. And and I think I shared earlier, I, trees have started talking to me <laughs> and I just realized that, you know, the more expanded, more clear we become, I have no idea what's possible for us. I didn't imagine I would be walking around having conversations with trees. And yet, because I have an expanded, an intention to expand my awareness of and receptivity to the world, to the cosmos, you know, anything is possible. So the beauty of this conversation is we never intended to exhaust everything. There is so much more to get to. You just opened there a space that we could spend an hour on when you talked about, did you call those key purpose indicators? Uh-huh. Well, because there is the somatic awareness, there is the relational awareness, there is the environmental awareness, there is that sense of alignment and congruency on the inside there is synchronicity and serendipity. There is more and more and more. And in, in the purpose work that, that I've led with teams and groups over the years, I've discovered that I needed to offer half a dozen or dozen sometimes different pathways and the different people would choose a different pathway for discovery. For one person, it was the inquiry of what am I about? What really matters for me? There was very much that type of an inquiry. For another, it was where am I getting energized and what's fun and, and what releases me into the playful part of me. And those are different orientation or different pathways. And um, you probably now know intuitively when you have somebody coming to you, showing up, what might be the natural pathway that will work best for them. What's important is to note that each person will come into the discovery of purpose and the discovery of beyond purpose in their own unique way. Yes. So I will ask uh, in closing, I'm gonna make a daring move and <laughs> ask you if you were to speak to the person that humanity is, Imagine that the entire humanity on earth now is, is a person going through, as we described uh, through this conversation, 
entered a, a decade of transformation, a, a decade of extraordinary potential and also extraordinary challenges. And if you were to speak to that person and offer that person a, a distilled coaching brief, what would you say? Obviously, you, you could talk for three hours about that, but what would be the, just the one or two messages to that humanity, one person as humanity, in terms of how are we as that human that humanity is to get further, better, more aligned, more tethered to purpose such that we indeed are able to heal and realize our potential? Well, we can now know without hesitation, we can without any doubt that the world is as we are. And that if we deeply desire to have a different world than what we currently have, our primary work, our only choice really is to begin the deep internal work to uncover who we are and reconcile that which keeps us from being that. Each of us has a one-of-a-kind, unique, it's one in 480 quadrillion version of us here to offer a gift. And unless each of us offers our gift, we're, we're fraught with holes. You know, we're like a tapestry without all the threads. And so my wish for each of us is to recognize that everything that happens to us is useful. There are no good, bad, right, wrong, preferred, not preferred opportunities and experiences in the world. Everything that occurs to us, for us, is on our behalf. You know, the universe is conspiring for us. So the sooner that we can recognize that the stuff that hurts, that feels like trauma or pain or displeasure is actually here to teach us something really important about ourselves in order to reconcile it and become more whole, we can start shifting how we are on the planet. Recognize more fully who you are. Reconcile the whole of yourself so you can integrate who you are becoming and uh, realize that inside it there is a gift for the whole. Yeah. Thank you, Holly. Thank you, Aviv. This was delightful. Thank you for listening to Portals of Perception. If you're enjoying these dialogues, we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com slash portals. Visit portalsofperception.org for exclusive content. Please share this episode with a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.